Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. We take a look back at the early life of Albert DeSalvo and the questions still swirling about his confession to being the Boston Strangler. Has your pouring over these archives given you any insights? I think I certainly came away with a sense that this man is capable of, of murder and rape. It's almost like saying you wish the sky wasn't blue. There's nothing I can do about it. It's part of my life. The way they see the world isn't like most people. Artists tend to be very often looked at as flaky or not part of, you know, society. It's just accepting that part of me that, yeah, we, we aren't like everybody else. This is a little, a little weird. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. The Boston Strangler was one of New England's most notorious criminals. He was America's Jack the Ripper, responsible for a murder spree that shocked the nation. But more than half a century after Albert DeSalvo confessed to being the Strangler, there's still debate over whether he actually committed the crimes. And that's what makes a recent discovery by a former Boston Globe reporter so intriguing. Dick Lair uncovered a secret archive documenting Albert DeSalvo's criminal career since childhood. Back then, researchers referred to him as boy number 402. Lair pursued the story for more than a decade until he was finally able to bring it to light. As he told contributing reporter David Wright. Whoever said journalism is the first rough draft of history would no doubt appreciate reporter Dick Lair, who approaches his craft with a scholarly attention to detail. These are the files that I ended up having to copy by hand. This is totally comprehensive. Unbelievable. This veteran of the Boston Globe Spotlight team unearthed a treasure trove of documents about one of America's first known serial killers. This is the story of the self-confessed Boston Strangler. Albert DeSalvo, immortalized in this 1968 movie starring Henry Fonda and Tony Curtis. These things you see that come into your head and you don't have anything to do about it, now is the time for you to try to make some sense out of them. Albert DeSalvo is you know, a historic crime figure in America. And I know that these files, you know, have just been gathering dust for decades. Has anyone ever seen this before? Lair was actually researching another legendary Boston crime figure when he discovered the documents. His reporting on mobster Whitey Bulger was already a best-selling book made into a movie starring Johnny Depp. Take the money, keep your mouth shut about what you just heard. It's best you're not involved. Take the money, take the money, take the money. So you're probably best known for Black Mass, a story about Whitey Bulger. And this discovery about Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, began with more inquiry into Whitey Bulger. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I really did stumble onto the Albert DeSalvo material. It was 2011, and Whitey Bulger had been captured in Santa Monica. Um, big story, international story. Tonight on World News, they got him. Public enemy number one, the notorious Whitey Bulger. A story I covered for ABC News. Good evening, Diane. Hiding right here in a rent-controlled apartment. Today, Whitey Bulger had his first of many days in court. He answered questions in a thick Boston accent. 
And at one point, his girlfriend leaned into him and said, all these reporters are here for you. And at that, Bulger laughed. There was suddenly uh, an appetite and an opportunity to write a full-length biography of Whitey Bulger. And I had read in, about an interesting study that a husband and wife team at Harvard, Sheldon and Eleanor Gluck, both law professors, had conducted um, on juvenile delinquency that began in the early 1940s. So you were thinking that maybe Whitey Bulger was among the people that were being studied by the Glucks? At first I thought maybe I'd get lucky and Whitey was in there. The Glucks focused on 500 inmates at the Lyman School for Boys in Westboro, Massachusetts, America's oldest reform school, long since closed, basically a prison for juvenile delinquents. So these are first-hand documents from the social workers who were meeting with these boys and giving fairly, fairly full detail. Unbelievable detail in a way that um, they were like a re reporter's reporter. Not only were, were they um, you know, sitting down with the boy at, at the Lyman School, that would be the initial intake, but they also would describe their features the kind of wonderful detail a writer likes to see. Al has told him that when Al was about 10 years old, um, this lad admitted that he began to clip from the different five and ten stores in the vicinity of Chelsea. They had an unusual eye for detail that went beyond the, a Q&A, for example. So I was flipping through these folders and came to the folder numbered 402, um, flipped it open, and there at the top of the intake sheet was the name Albert DeSalvo. Albert DeSalvo. My jaw dropped. I was like, whoa, what the heck? Turns out, boy number 402 would ultimately confess to being New England's most notorious serial killer, the Boston Strangler, a case that traumatized a generation of women in a more innocent era. The stranglings have become the chief topic of conversation between housewives on the telephone, co-eds between classes, and secretaries during coffee breaks. The Strangler's first victim was Anna Slessers, a 55-year-old divorcee, brutally beaten and strangled while a parade passed down her back bay street. In all, the Strangler raped and murdered at least 11 women during the early 1960s. His grisly calling card, a nylon stocking, knotted around the necks of his victims. The details in these files offer a real-time glimpse into the mind of a career criminal. So how old was DeSalvo when he first was interviewed? Uh, Twelve. Twelve years old. Already a criminal. Already, yeah, in, in the you know, sentence to the boys' reformatory. Right. Yeah, and it was the, the charge that put him in the reformatory was he and a couple pals uh, had beat up a, a paper boy, a newsboy in Chelsea, and stolen $2.80 from him or something. Let, let's back up a second. Sure. T t tell us more about what this study was about. The Glucks, Sheldon and Eleanor, um, as criminologists and the Harvard Law professor, and I would say um, sociologists, um, uh, one of their life's missions or one of their uh, interests, uh, research interests, was trying to get to the root of juvenile delinquency. So they launched this amazing study. And what was so remarkable and has been so remarkable about the Gluck study is its longitudinal. How do you mean? Well, they followed the boys over years. Um, Coming back at regular intervals at to check and see how they were doing. Yes, again, in deeply documented inter, you know, en encounters. 1947, 1956, 1962. 1962. This awesome. is when the Boston Stranglers when out there. Yeah, it's, it's some, it feels like something right out of a, a crime thriller or something. 
it kind of sends a chill up your spine because if you believe Al DeSalvo is the Boston Strangler, he's killed five women, the first wave of killings. And then there's a respite that fall of 1962, and then he goes on again to kill the others. It's fascinating because the, the social worker, Jeb, notes at the end of that visit that he suspects, what was the phrase, actively delinquent, uh, dangerously delinquent? Well, but he, yeah, at the, end, at the end of Jeb's notes, in which, you know, he pretty much documents the back and forth, the different sub subjects, and, and he notes that when he left in the early evening, everything had gone really well, and it was the longest session they'd ever had. Um, but, he go, but he basically writes, I don't buy it. And that's where it gets real eerie, because he's killing women. He's killing. He's a killer. You could tell the social worker sends something, a bad, really bad vibe about this guy. Not long after that 1962 interview, he confesses, right? Yeah, within a couple of years, he was under arrest. He was going on trial for that, the crimes of, 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 of serial rape when uh, he and his lawyer, Ethley Bailey, when Al DeSalvo confessed and said he was the Boston Strangler responsible for all these serial killings. And the question of whether or not it's true confession, whether or not he is actually the Boston Strangler, is probably, there's probably shelves on your bookcase behind you there, that, that uh, a shelf full of books. Yes, no, you can get into a fierce debate between uh, writers and journalists and, and a law enforcement who believe he is the killer, he is the strangler, and, and those who believe he is not. Is the criminal record sealed or the, the juvenile record? Uh, you're right. I mean, yeah, the juvenile records would have been non-public. Keep in mind, Lair learned all this more than a decade ago, but was unable to publish it because of the confidentiality agreement he signed to access the archive. Well, I felt it was really newsworthy, new information, all that kind of stuff. So in 2013, I went back and asked for a waiver um, from the confidentiality provisions, arguing that this is history, he's been dead 40 years, um, there's news here, it's in the public interest, all that. The archive said no. You must have been ready to chew your arm off. Uh, yeah, no, I was like, okay, what do I do now? Only recently did that finally change. There was one thing in the provision that provided a glimmer of hope. This loan agreement that governed access and included the confidentiality provision that had been adopted in the early 1960s had an end date. What was the date? Um, the summer of 2020. Wow. So uh, a year ago, last summer, I knocked on their door and said, I'm back. And this is all new. This time, Harvard relented, and Lair was finally free to publish. Front page news above the fold, 50 years after the murders. The perfect pandemic research project. Exactly. It's covering what he's doing and working. Turns out he wasn't the only person stymied by that confidentiality agreement. So were law enforcement investigators building the case against DeSalvo back in the 60s. The Harvard professors who commissioned the study never shared their notes with them. The Glukes uh, obviously were aware <laughs> that, that DeSalvo was now caught up in the criminal justice system and was claiming he was, you know, the Boston Strangler. Um, not only did they not come forward, when an investigator, a state investigator, somehow had heard, caught, figured out that DeSalvo was part of this you know, landmark study, the investigator, a state investigator, had gone to the Glukes um, and said, I want your stuff on Al. And uh, Sheldon Gluk, Professor Gluk, uh, wrote uh, the dean of the Harvard Law School, because that's where they worked, Erwin Griswold, all these are famous names, you know. Um, explaining what had just happened. The law school dean 
personally asked the state attorney general to shut it down. So the old boys network, the closed old drink. boys network, um, go over the head of the investigator. Right. Um, and again, these are things that are it's just wonderful to find in the archive. And the last thing you find in the file is a note back from um, Attorney General Richardson to the law school dean. Thank you for your note. Yes, we're we we've been interested in look in connection with the Strangler investigation. Um, but rest assured um, that uh, we won't be needing to go there. Or I'm, I'm paraphrasing. The big question, of course, is whether the documents finally resolve the ongoing debate about DeSalvo's confession. Was he really the Boston Strangler? Has your poring over these archives given you any insights? Um, I'm not enough of an expert in, in, in terms of that controversy and all of those individual crimes and killings. Um, but I think I certainly came away with the sense that this man is capable of, of murder and rape. I mean, in, in an odd way, it seems to support both sides of the debate, doesn't it? That, I mean, this is unquestionably a bad guy. Yes. But also, this is a guy who has a gift of the gab. Yes. And likes to brag. Yes. It can cut both ways, and that's why I think in, in some ways I'm not sure it'll ever be resolved. Up next, imagine living in a world where music is not only heard, but also seen. Words have flavors and colors have a smell. It's not a hallucination or a metaphor and it can't be taught. It's a neurological condition and those who have this crossover of the senses say it's dramatically changed how they perceive the world. I think that we're all lucky that it exists because without it, there would not be um, the magnificent art that we, we get to have all around us. Artist Alin Carlson has a neurological condition that she says makes her life and her artwork more interesting. I was probably five and I started seeing numbers in color. Three was yellow, five was red, zero was white, um, Seven was uh, sort of a purpley blue. Not only does Carlson see numbers and color, but she says she can also hear them and smell them. You've been open about the fact that you feel self-conscious somewhat, even no. talking about this. Yeah, Why is that? Well, it's kind of um, I, because other people can't really relate to it. Artist and musician Lenny Peterson certainly can. So when I hear music, I see shapes. What kind of shapes? They are, well, they're in my art, and they're anywhere from a straight line, depending on the note, to all kinds of atmosphere within squares and circles. Both Lenny Peterson and Alin Carlson have synesthesia, a rare condition where a person's senses, including the sense of smell and sound, get mixed together. We asked neurologist Dr. Richard Saitowik to explain just what synesthesia is. It's pretty easy. Everybody knows the word anesthesia, which means no sensation. So synesthesia means joined or coupled sensation. And there are kids who are born with two, three, or all five of their senses hooked together so that my voice, for example, is not only something that they hear, 
but something that they might also see or taste or feel as a physical touch. Dr. Saitowik is credited with bringing synesthesia back to mainstream science. He's written six books on the phenomenon. He says colleagues initially dismissed it as too weird and new age. What happened is that, you know, I caused a paradigm shift in how we think about how the brain is organized. We don't have five senses traveling down five tubes that never intermingle. There are huge numbers of cross connections in the brain all the time. Carlson says the artwork featured in her new Bedford studio was created in large part thanks to her synesthesia. If I'm working um, and two colors seem to come together and I smell them, they kind of lead me into an area to continue. And because my work is abstract, very often what I'm doing is I'm reacting to a color combination. Take, for instance, this abstract painting. Carlson says she painted it by mixing colors that smelled like one of her favorite things, a low tide. So I started to be able to pull in the whole family of those colors that smelled that way to me. It was like an undercurrent in the whole palette. And so from that, I, was, I painted a you know 80-inch wide um, abstract landscape just from the smell, those two colors that came together. And that, that happened, boom, that was so fast. Synesthesia is more common than some might think. Dr. Saitowik says 4% of the population has this union of the senses, including Lady Gaga and Billy Joel. Russian writer Vladimir Nabokov, who wrote Lolita, also had it. So did composer and pianist Duke Ellington. Is synesthesia more common among artists and musicians? Well, you know, we are, we're more familiar with uh, famous artists who happen to be synesthetes than we are famous synesthetes who happen to be artists. And it's a chicken and egg question of, uh, are they artistic because they're synesthetic or are they synesthetic because they're artistic? But I think it's, I think it's the former that uh, and they're used to unusual things going together. It's those unusual things that inspire the work of Newport-based artist Lenny Peterson. He listens to music as he works and draws the shapes that he sees. Now these shapes appear three-dimensional in front of you, they're floating in the air. They are being created in front of me. They're not like in the, they're not in the room. They're forming in front of me as I listen to music. And the more I concentrate on it, the more they're gonna form and the clearer they're gonna form. Peterson was in his late 20s teaching at the Berklee College of Music when he realized the way he experiences the world isn't like most people. I was producing a student's project of music and we were tracking keyboards. And I said, I got on the, you know, the talk mic and I said, can you make that chord more round? And I just got this stunned silence, you know, like, wait, what? So I turned to the engineer and he said to me, what? I said, can't, I want to make it more round. He said, you must have synesthesia. Peterson's paintings are heavily influenced by the music he listens to. 
So this is specifically around um, a Miles Davis song, actually, called In a Silent Way. And it's a very um, mystical kind of setting for this song. Then the synesthesia kicks in here. I start in the top left-hand corner, and my hand, I let my hand go. And it's just a free flow of while the music's playing. At times, Peterson says, it feels like an overload of the senses, which he says isn't a bad thing. If I get extremely sick, like high fever, a lot of people have hallucinations when they get really super sick. But ever since I was a little kid, I would hear these gigantic symphonies in my head that were just like crazy huge, like Wagnerian Mahler type symphonies. Do you ever wish you didn't have synesthesia? No, never, never. It's almost like saying you wish the sky wasn't blue. There's nothing I can do about it, and it's, it's there, you know, and um, it's just it's part of my life. Is it hereditary? Oh, yes, absolutely. Very strongly so. It runs strongly in families. Um, either sex parent can pass it down to either sex child, and you'll see it in multiple generations. So the most I have is four, gen four living generations with synesthesia. But historically, we've been able to be trace it back even more so. According to the National Institutes of Health, some researchers think people with synesthesia have extra connections between brain cells in some areas of the brain. Others think the direction that information can flow between brain cells might be different. Dr. Saitoic says synesthesia is a left brain phenomenon. There's a difference between actually viewing colors and seeing synesthetic colors. And uh, it's as if synesthesia has hijacked a normal brain function that is viewing colors by uh, connecting it with other kinds, other senses in the left hemisphere. Colorful experiences can also evoke pleasant sounds. For a Lynn Carlson, this combination of blue has a distinct pitch. Every time I started to put them together, I would hear cello. I would hear cello music, just a long note, just a long note. It's, it's not a complicated piece of music. As the paint is being mixed. Yeah, as the paint is being mixed. The, when I would get still with it, I would just hear it. And sometimes she can smell it too. I would hold her and of course smell her. Carlson says this painting captures the smell of her youngest granddaughter when she was a baby. And I just wanted to replicate it somehow, and I, uh, these colors came to mind. It wasn't hard at all. They just popped in, and that's where this came from. So, um, Can you is, smell your granddaughter when you look at this? Well, painting? she's three and a half now, but I can smell a baby. You can? Yeah. For Carlson, synesthesia allows her to hold on to precious memories. What would a world without synesthesia look like for you? Um, I don't know. I probably wouldn't be obviously doing what I do, making what I make, um, I'd be lost. I'd be really lost, I think. Finally tonight, although the Newport Bridge provides a spectacular view of a small landmass called Rose Island, most people in the Ocean State know little about its storied past. That's about to change. As part of our continuing series, Window on Rhode Island, the island's manager gives us a tour to learn about its colorful history. Mm. 
Hi, I'm Mike Healy. Welcome to Rose Island on a beautiful day. We are located on the East Passage of Narragansett Bay. We don't actually know how Rose Island got its name, but what we do know is that the Indians called it Kanakanaquit. And in Indian, Kanakanaquit means the island with the long stem. And if you were to come over the Newport Bridge at low tide, you would see a strip of about 200 yards of beach that appears only at low tide and the island. So from that perspective, it does look like a rose with a stem. We're going to start at one of the oldest structures on the island, which is the barracks. The barracks was built around 1798 and was uh, designed to hold up to 200 troops in nine rooms. That's 33 troops to a room. Let's go inside and take a look. Okay, so here we are in the barracks, room number one, and this is a very interesting structure. This was the first structure in America to be cannonball proof. So as you can see behind me here, the walls are three to four feet thick. Today though, you can stay in this room just for fun. At the other end of the barracks, and I'd like to share with you another piece of the history here, which is that the barracks was part of Naval Torpedo Station Newport in the First and Second World Wars. They actually designated that the explosive for the torpedoes would be stored in the barracks because remember, it's such a solid structure. The torpedoes were manufactured on Gold Island. They were brought out to Rose Island by barge. And then the train tracks that you see here were used to bring the torpedoes up here, marry the explosives to the torpedoes, and then they were test fired out of Gould Island. But uh, right now, let's head up to the Jewel in the Crown, the lighthouse on Rose Island. In 1869, the government spent $7,000 to put a lighthouse here, and it ran for 100 years until they built the Claiborne Pell Bridge. It made the lighthouse obsolete because the lights from the bridge were, were able to light up the island adequately, so it was no longer a hazard to navigation. But here we are on the ground floor of the, of the lighthouse, was determined to try and replicate what it looked like at the turn of the 20th century. So one of the things we found, ironically, was the actual coal stove that was used here was in Newport, and we found it and brought it out here. The old washboard that they used, of course, that was your washing machine. We also had, oh, this was your dryer back then, if you ever heard the expression being put through the ringer. That's what this was. Okay, so now we're coming into the museum room, having left the kitchen and dining area. The hurricane of 1938, which of course was the worst hurricane to ever hit the Northeast. But the remarkable story here at, at this lighthouse, Rose Island, was that the lighthouse keeper's daughter strapped herself to the flagpole in 1938 and took these photographs, these actual photographs behind us. One of the things you can see in the photographs is that there was a boathouse there before the hurricane and after the hurricane the boathouse was gone along with tons and tons of coal the life of a lighthouse keeper back in around 1900. So they had what's called a Fresnel lens and that was run by a kerosene and a wick. So what that meant is that the lighthouse keeper had to tend to that light all night long to make sure that it was working properly. So it entailed running all the way up to the light, checking that it had enough oil, tending to the wick. But one clever lighthouse keeper decided that he could, he could make his life a little bit easier by putting his bed here, putting a mirror on the railing outside and angling it up towards the light so that all he had to do was sit up, 
look out and see if the light was working. So that saved him a lot of trips back and forth. When you're standing at the top of the lighthouse, the views really are quite stunning. You can see all the way over to Jamestown, you can see Castle Hill, you can see Aquidneck Island, Fort Adams, Goat Island. It brings images and memories of so many happy times out here, you know. It's, I always look over the bridge at it, you know, to see if it's at low tide with a little stem coming out. And, you know, you just fall in love with the place. It charms you. <laughs> Our thanks to Mike Healy for that tour. And that's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you. Good night.